This is Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another great episode of Improv Nerd. Our guest today is Dee Ryan. She did three reviews at the Second City ETC here in Chicago, as well as being a member of the National Touring Company. While living in Los Angeles, she was a part of the amazing improv group Stacy's Not Here and the award-winning The All-Girl Review. She's appeared on such television shows as The Office and The Practice. She teaches at Northwestern University, where she uses long-form improv in the film department. In this very candid interview, she talks about how growing up with brothers helped her in comedy in the 90s, when things were a little rougher, and how she overcame dealing with a bad cast member and how she approaches her characters. She does wonderful characters when she improvises. She also improvises on a regular basis here in Chicago and hosts or co-hosts a story night uh, called Louder Than a Mom. I love Dee Ryan because she is so honest and so direct, and we talked to her a little bit how she developed that. Um, you're going to really love this interview. Before we get to that, as you can tell, I've been sick for the last week. I hope you can tell it in my voice so you don't think I'm faking it. And it was interesting because uh, it was the first time since we've had Betsy that uh, I got sick. So I, it works like dominoes when, when, you have, when you're married and you have a kid. So I got sick, then Lauren got sick, then Betsy got sick. And that Sunday, uh, I had to perform uh, an improv show called Jimmy and Johnny. And uh, so I slept all day Sunday to get ready for the, the show. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but, but I have. Um, there's something about when you're sick and you do an improv show. I don't know if it, part of your brain shuts down, the part where you're, you're self-conscious and you're judging everything you do. But I usually, and I've heard other people say this, I know Mick Napier, I remember saying this, but sometimes when you are sick, you do some of your best shows. And I got to tell you something, it was a great show. It was packed. It was sold out, which um, kind of surprised me, actually. Uh, but I loved it. And we performed with Bob Fisher, who we've had on this show. And so Bob, John Hildreth, and myself, we're all kind of the same generation of improviser. We're old people. We're over. We're all around fifty, I would say, um, and that. And so uh, that that's always fun to do. And it was just a great show. And I was just I was not self conscious. And it, I don't know if it's it's being clogged up or if it's running a slight fever, whatever it is. I always have great shows when I'm sick. So I'd be curious if you've experienced that as well. All right, enough about me. I'm glad to be back. Uh, I don't like to be sick. I'm not a good patient. I really am not. You can ask Lauren on that one. So here it is. You're really going to enjoy this. Uh, And listen, because at the end of the episode, when we usually sign off and we ask the last question, which is, what piece of advice would you give an improviser starting out? We kind of do an extended, a bonus version, and she goes into... Uh, other stuff, and I think it, that's where she talks about characters. So, and how she approaches it, because she does great character work. So here it is, the D Ryan episode. Enjoy. D Ryan, thank you for being our guest on Improv Nerd. 
Well, thank you for asking me. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Are you serious? Yeah. No, oh my no, God. not really, no. Well, I'm glad to have you on. So you grew up in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, and Troy, Michigan for a couple of years, and then back to Tewksbury, and you said you couldn't wait to get out of there. Yeah, well, um, Tewksbury, Massachusetts is adjacent to Lowell, Mass., which is the um, town in The Fighter. And that, that movie. That movie, The Fighter, and the women in that movie who are like, fuck you, bitch, like those, those were the tough girls, white trash girls that I grew up with. I know those girls and I wanted, I wanted out. I wanted out. Would you say that, um, you grew up, uh, fourth of five kids mm-hmm. and you had two brothers. I had three brothers. Three brothers and, an, and a sister who became an engineer. Yeah. How did that prepare you for a career in comedy? Well, um, my sister and I both work in fields that are dominated by men, and we feel like uh, having three brothers really made us tolerant of a lot of testosterone. But there's also a toughness about you, too, wouldn't you say? Uh, Yeah, for sure. For sure. (laughs) Is that something you developed in your family, or was that... Um, I think for sure in my family. Um, I'm fourth of five, but my parents are Catholic, and my mother married late, and so we are five kids born in six and a half years. So, yeah, I for sure you <laughs> struggled for food. Because I w- did you really? Pretty much, I think so. I think when, at dinner time you were like, I I must get that. Yeah, because yeah. I was one of five kids. I was second, and when a pe- when we would have pizza, it was just like uh, <laughs> you you had to get in there and you had to get in there quick. Right. And you know what I remember, too, is we grew up in Massachusetts in predominantly Catholic areas, and there were families of like 7 and 11, so we were actually like a small family, like a mid-sized family. We weren't a giant family. The other thing growing up for me in a a big family was this sense of like you had an audience, you had a built-in audience because you had a big family, but also you had to fight for attention and, and learn how to get focus. Yeah, I for sure, I think it's funny because my mother, um, my parents, something I really feel was a tragedy is my parents never came to Chicago and saw me improvise at Second City because they they were overwhelmed or whatever. And it makes me so upset that they never did that, made the effort for it, but it just wasn't in their worldview to do. Um, But... um, I think I always wanted to be funny to get my mother's attention. And uh, then years later, she came to, I wrote a one-person show, and I brought, I literally brought it to Lowell, to the Merrimack Theater, so my mother could see my show. <laughs> and she saw it, and she said... I think if we tap on this, we're oh, going to pick it okay. up. It's your um, living room, and I feel a little <laughs> shame about telling you, don't tap on your dining room table. I'm making emphasis. Um as she came to the show and she said, yeah, I don't, I really don't like comedy. <laughs> How like, did that make you feel what? when you heard that? Like, here's this person that all she wanted to make your mom laugh. Oh my God. It was, it was, it was both freeing because I was like, yeah, what, what's the point? <laughs> that's, that's my bad for being the age I was and not realizing that. And then also completely infuriating since it is my passion and it is the thing I love to do the most. You also said you were stubborn as a child. I still am stubborn. In what way? Um, how does it play out today? 
Well, I mean, I'm renovating my house and I made my contractor's life miserable because I'm like, it needs to be this way and we're just going to do it that way. Um, well, I, I, I think stubborn is a good thing as an improviser and as you climb up the, you know, I was going to do it. I mean, I'm sure you have to be stubborn to stay at I.O. because you fail you just fail. You get up on stage and you fail and you feel horrible. And you have two choices. One is like, I'm not going to come back. And the other is, I'm going to come back and I'm going to make this work. So tell us about, you, you do a show at IO because that's what we're, we'll get to this. This was one of the places you train. You bomb. You do a, you just suck. What, how does D. Ryan go home that night and, 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 and get over that so the next time she performs, She's, she's got her confidence. Um, you know, well, I think when you first start improvising at I.O., you're just so excited to be on stage. It's after, and then it's just, you know, if you get a laugh, oh, that's so great. It's so exciting. That's the, that's the drug that gets you to come back. But then when you're, you know, then after that, you're trying to recreate that energy and it's really hard. And that's when craft comes in. And, you you know, maybe you don't, you don't have it. So I used to, this is so crazy, but I used to go You're into the bathroom. You're blushing a little. Okay, I love this. <laughs> First of all, uh, I had a song, which was, um, that's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight, losing my religion. Mm-hmm. Because. Uh, R- R.E.M., if I'm not that's mistaken. Right, that's right. Um because I felt like that's me in the oh I just felt like that's what was happening to me and part of it was just coming from because I had done improv in Boston and feeling like I'm I got this and then being and having that just stripped away and just I don't know what I'm doing um, and also because in Boston you would never make fun of the Kennedys. Like, I remember coming here and doing a Herald in which people were making fun of Teddy Kennedy. And I was just like, that's, you just don't do that. You don't, that's like, that's the Kennedys. And so I I sort of felt like, wow, they're just stripping away my culture and my love. And so I used to, and then I used to, before the Herald, I would go into the bathroom and I would say to myself, you're going to be a hero, D, tonight. You're going to be a hero. And that was your ritual? <laughs> that was my ritual. Yeah. Uh, so t- you were at Improv Boston. You, you just mentioned that. And then um, you get to the I.O. because Sharna brings, I believe it was the Southern Comfort. That's what it was. Herald competition. And you see a Herald for the first time. Yeah. And I, I was like, what is that? What is that? I want to do that. And you were doing short form up until this point. We were point. doing short form, which, you know, is is just to me, is so jokey and just not that rewarding. It's like sugar. It it's such a performance thing. But I love story, and that was, to me, seeing that was creating story, and I love theater. And it was theater. It was different. It wasn't just this sketchy, you know, ha-ha comedy bit. It was theater. It was amazing. And the group work, yeah. So then I decided to go, I'm going to go to Chicago. And you make a call to the Second City Conservatory. (laughs) And I talked to Jeffrey, what was his last name? 
Was it Jeffrey or Joffrey? No, Joffrey. That's okay, right. Okay, who eventually goes to the annoyance? Yeah, Joffrey. Yes. I can't remember his last name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't even. I don't even call him. I write him a letter because that's what we did in the day. Mm-hmm. I write him a letter. What year is this? So this people is... are listening. Oh, we did not have email. Uh, we did not. It's... Everybody had landlines back then. <laughs> there was no internet. I guess it was eighty nine or ninety. So, so you write him a letter. I write him a letter, and I say uh, I want to come out to Chicago for the summer, and I would like to take classes at the conservatory. And I think he calls me back, and he says uh, you have to audition. And I couldn't make the auditions, so um, I tell him, "Look, I've been performing with Improv Boston every weekend. I have skills. I should. I'm. I'm more than qualified for the conservatory." And he says to me, fine, um, but if you suck, we'll kick you out. <laughs> How did you take that? I thought that was fair. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. You, you call it stubborn, but there's also a part of your stubbornness that is confidence. <laughs> You're laughing at that. I, competence? No, confidence. It, oh, confidence. confidence, yes. You've got confidence because anybody who's like, look, I'm not going to take classes. I've already did Improv Boston. That takes confidence. Yeah. Yeah, I had I had some Was that coming from your parents? Um maybe. I don't know. No, I don't think so. No, my parents were completely, you know, my father was an insurance broker, my mother was a nurse and they were theater to them was or comedy was just something they had no knowledge Would of. they have been as ballsy as you are when you called the Second City Conservatory? No. No. We've, we were so Irish Catholic, right? So Don't offend be, anybody. Right. You should be humble. Right. You should be humble. Yeah. No, I think I was... I think I was driven. You know, I was young. And remember how driven you were when yes. you were young? Yeah, we all wanted to be famous. That's Did you right. want to be famous? You know, I don't... I never wanted to be famous. And that is a problem. That is a problem. Why is it a problem? Because ultimately, you need when you go out to L.A., you need to want to be famous. You need to want to be famous. But I wanted to be a supporting player. I wanted to be a character actor. I wanted to be the person who plays with other people. You wanted to be Dan Aykroyd. I did. I thought I was so... I mean, I love Gilda Radner, and she's incredible. But I thought Dan Aykroyd was like the anchor, the linchpin, and just so... And I guess maybe that is the Catholic thing, and so humble. (laughs) He just was in the background and always funny and always there. And And, took his work seriously. And when you got here... Uh, at the I.O., you study with Del Close, and you describe him as a misogynist and a pussycat. (laughs) So I remember watching Harold's from the back, because that's what you did. You went to I.O., and you always hoped that Shauna would ask you to go up on a team. Because you're taking classes at at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but at this point, I was also on a team. But you know, you would just show up. Maybe you'd do the musical. Hopefully, there'd be somebody. There'd be some, a, a group that was short, right. and they say, "Hey, Dee, why don't you come up right. and, and join?" Right. So I remember being in the back there and seeing the family, which victims' family then, which was Adam McKay, Matt Besser, Neil Flynn, Pete Holney. Uh, Rick Roma, Rachel Drash was on that for a while, wasn't she? Uh, she never, they never, she played with them a little bit, mm-hmm. but you, they never wanted to have a woman on the team. So you had Allie Farinaki in there? Uh-huh. Uh, Ma- uh, Ian Roberts. 
Ian Roberts, Miles. Miles Straw. Yeah. Um, and Rick Roman was on the team, and he was incredibly talented. Um, uh, so I remember going and watching them and hearing um, Dell say, yeah, we fucked that cunt. Why did he say? <laughs> we fucked that cunt. <laughs> he... I don't know if you can put this on your... Yes, we can put the C word on. You know... Uh, what was he like referring to? Like, I'm standing to? right next to him. They had, they had done a bit where they took somebody's pocketbook, and they had gone through the pocketbook mm-hmm. and just done scenes with the stuff in a pocketbook, which was awesome. And yes, it was really great, but I, I didn't really think they had fucked that cunt. So, <laughs> but you're standing right next to your teacher, your mentor, <laughs> just like, uh, he actually said it, and he really meant it. Um, at the same time, Dell was a fan of my work, and he would um, stop scenes where where some of the other players were railroading my ideas and say, did you hear what she said? Did you listen to her? She's smart. Follow her stuff. Um, and it was great. It was great. How important was that when you're starting out to get that Oh, my God. To approval. get Dell's approval. <laughs> Yeah, that was here. I mean, we all wanted Dell's approval. I know I did. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That meant a lot. And because he was that, I mean, this is weird to say, but he was a kind of father figure at the at the show. And, you know, you want daddy to like you. I remember seeing him years later at um, the Austin Comedy Festival. And he and I saw him in the airport <laughs> And I just went up and gave him this big, giant hug. And I was like, Del. And now I'm not even sure if he remembered me. Um, and I also think he was maybe a little on the Asperger's spectrum, you know, because he was just like, oh, how are you? you? As you say that story, your face is just beaming. I just, um, yeah, boy, he, he the, I mean, we can talk about this too, um, you know, the way that he was the guru to people, I mean, what, what was that? I mean, he, did he teach you improvisation? I mean, I think he definitely had an idea about the game of the scene that was revolutionary and helped focus in scenes, but mostly he just said to you, be smarter, play slower and do better. And just challenged you to do that. Well, and I've said this many times on the podcast. He would talk the first 40, 50 minutes of the class. <laughs> I know. Or he, he had no idea what you were going to do. I mean, I remember whole classes where we would, we would just um, mime through our day. We would get up on stage and you would mime through your day. And then someone else would mime through their day next to you. Like, like just doing object work in <laughs> silence? Like, yeah, in silence. How long would that go on for? Maybe like, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Because he was working through something. On the other hand, you know, you were like, I'm on board for this. And eventually, I think we started doing, we would do that object work, and then we would try to do scenes in which we would mesh our days together, or we would try to see if there was a way that we, it would be like a herald and our days would cross. <laughs> it, was, 
it never really worked, but when we got to that place, it was like, oh, this is really intriguing. Well, I think he really liked the process. Yeah. Yeah, which which I do too, which I think is so awesome. And I and maybe and maybe that's the best thing is that at that point in your career, it should be all about process. Mm-hmm. You know, where at Second City when you take the conservatory classes, and I don't know if this exists anymore because those we were so early. Did you do the conservatory? I did conservatory. You know, that was just they were pasting that together. Right. We're going to do this. and But those classes were so much about doing the Viola Spolin technique, but not necessarily to a, an end, where Dell really was like, this is a process and we're going to put it up on stage. Well, so when I was taking the conservatory, and it's roughly probably the same time you did, it was like five levels. And then we, we created a Second City style review and ran that for eight weeks. Right. The thing is, though, we were coming, we were doing, we were learning to improvise to write a show, right? I mean, that's what Second City does. You're improvising to write a show. Um, and it was not, as I remember, when I took it, and again, we were in around the same time, there was no formality. You would get Jeff Michalski, you'd get John Michalski, and there was no, like, or Donnie DiPaolo was another teacher. You, you, it, it didn't seem like there was... Um, it, it had a, a flow to it right. back then. Like it had a syllabus. And yeah, or we're gonna, this is what we're going to build. It would be right. you come to the fifth level and like, okay, we're putting on a show. Right. You know? Right. And so, yeah, you've never written before, and suddenly you're, you're creating scenes. I, I, for sure, there is a more structure to it. I know that because I taught at Second City in L.A. for 10 years. Yeah, there is more structure. But when we took it, it was basically we're playing the ABC game, and now write some seats. <laughs> right, right. Because your show's going up. We're going to preview in two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, is great. So how did you go from the I.O. then to Second City? You have a great story about being hired at Second City. <laughs> so um, uh, Kelly Leonard and Peter Marietta were doing a... Uh, they were they were pitching a show for MTV at the time when MTV was the coolest, hottest new thing. Um, when they had these things called videos. <laughs> All right, music videos. Look so, that up. Google that. So, and the concept was really cool. It was a house with all these young people in it, and a band would come and stay in the house. And they would film sort of an episode. Each week, there would be like a band living with all these cool, hip, improviser young people. So Kelly and Peter came and saw me at I.O., and it must have been one of the, you know, few great shows I did. And then they... What do you mean by that? You you know, because you're like, you're, you're, you're doing shows all the time. And it's just, this show is great. And then this show is, ah, this show... So they, they caught the magic in the bottle show. Yeah. The one, you know, every 20 shows, are, you know, some are good, some are rough. But, yeah. but there's really, really good ones. Yeah. And this is a show, too, where... Because the other thing is, it's an ensemble, right? So maybe that's not my show, right? This is this was a show that was my show, and they saw it, and boom. So they said, please come to rehearsal on Friday. So I go to rehearsal, and This I, is at the ETC. This is at the ETC, and I walk in, and, and Kelly says, uh, sit down here. And I sit down, and I'm watching the rehearsal. So you're, like, in the back or on the rail? I'm, or? like, on the rail. Okay. And, um, and 15 minutes later... It, 
And the only one I remember is Francis, who I ended up touring with. Francis Collier. Francis Collier, who I ended up touring with, and I love Francis. Um, And there there was one other girl. They stop the rehearsal, and they look out at me and point and say, we see her. We know why she's here. Get her out. So... So, so what are you thinking at this point when you hear that? I was like, oh, damn. I mean, a little bit. I'm like, why did they Why did they not tell them why I was there? I mean, that's typical Second right. City. Right. It's a good introduction to Second City, you know? <laughs> Better like, than any class you're going to take. You're going to learn yeah, how it operates. I get that that's really horrible. They're, you're there, and you, they're also improvising in front of me, and I'm watching them. Right. When they clearly know I've been brought in to either join them or replace them. Right. So uh, they kick me out, and Kelly is really apologetic. And part of me always thought after that that Kelly thought, I, I owe her a little bit. So um, so anyway, so but I did audition three times, and I think I told you I the last time I had a huge crying fit in my kitchen saying they're never going to hire me what do I have to do and then about a month later Kelly called me and said would you come and join the tour co and you tour for a while yep I toured for uh I think maybe a year maybe even less than that um so I toured for a while in blue co um with I did a little bit of red co uh, I toured in Blue Co, Mighty Mighty Blue Co. Um, with Kevin Dorf and I were hired on the same day and went into Blue Co on the same day. And um, so we were like, you know, hiree twins. Um, with Francis Collier, Jill Sheely, Michael Williams, Matt Dwyer. Um, you smile when you say Matt Dwyer. <laughs> because Matt, a what? He just, he just, Matt was so fun to play with on stage, but also afterwards it was like all of us were on alert, like who's going to take care of Matt? Well, Matt was very young when he got hired. Very young, very young, yeah. But I remember him getting, he, I hope he doesn't mind me telling us, having like too much to drink. We were at Wellesley College. We were staying in the, in like the place they put up professors in this incredibly posh all girl college, and Matt had too much to drink, and I think he ran naked, through, like, naked through the university, and it was just like oh. Also, I toured with Dave Keckner, who I love, and he, um, he would on tour, he would wake up on the in the in the van he would wake up and then he would get everyone singing he would be you know dave yeah you you were his roommate yes yeah he'd get us all singing like ah and all hyped up and then you'd look and he'd have gone back to sleep (laughs) but i remember crying in a closet in maine saying i hate dave (laughs) why why do you make why why did you get to that point with that oh gosh you know, it just, it was a time. I, uh, I, um, I was the strongest female in my cast. 
Now, how many females are in the cast? This was like, at this point, they were trying to be really proactive, so it was half and half. Okay, so you were you kind of got on the cusp where it was at one time, wasn't it, four four men and two women? Yeah. And now they were, they were, Kelly had come in and made three and three. Right. Okay. So I was, but I was the strongest personality in the cast, and I, at one point on that tour, said that Dave always wanted to play with Keckner. I mean, sorry, Keckner always wanted to play with Kevin. Because, Kevin Dorf, because yeah, they, they, they had like, done Jed's, yeah, Jed's Freddy like together. They had a long, friends. they had a long history. Yeah, um, and I at one point said that's bullshit. You know, you can't. You guys cannot just do scenes together. You have to do it with all of us. You have to include the women too. And but they really played with me. So I was standing up for my sisters, um, and they made me pay. They made me pay the price. Meaning. They wouldn't improvise with me. So, you know, that was that was a bummer, and that's why I was crying. But also I was crying in a closet because those tours were crazy, and you would, you would go to Maine. In fact, I remember that on that trip, we were, we were in Maine, but we had traveled to so many places that Keckner at the end of it was saying, um, thank you, Connecticut. Right. <laughs> like, because we just you 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 got in the van in the morning at six you you went you did a show then you would be so hyped up after a show you would stay up till two then you would get in the van in the morning at six and drive and so you're just exhausted so everyone is plus you've got drinking in there oh, yeah. and, and yeah. you're not eating well and yeah. you're not sleeping so, well yeah. and so it is not Dave Keckner's fault. And I love Dave. I love Dave, too. And so, but we were all back then. You know, I look back at the, some of the stuff that I did. You know, you just, you just, you know, you, you were so focused on, I got to get there. I got to be famous. I'm Fear is what it really is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think it was fear on Dave's part, too. He he wanted to make sure that he did really good scenes. And he knew, you know, Dorf is so strong. Um, you know, you just, it's like, you also want to feel like I'm strong too. Why don't you play with me? If you don't play with me, you won't know how strong I am. So then you get ETC, which is a resident company. Yeah. And you said you, you, uh, you describe it, you get into a very dysfunctional cast. Here's the thing. I remember when I was first hired at Second City, uh, when I was in Torco going, to watch those shows and thinking, this is the best job in the world. To be in a resident stage, the best job in the world. We, uh, Ian Gomez and Nia Dallas were going to L.A. So there, they so, were, go on. So they were, there was going to be two spots. Everybody knew that there was going to be empty spots in ETC. And I remember going and watching that show, and I had understudied for that cast too, and watching them and thinking, this is a terrible cast. I, I wouldn't want to be in it. And then I got called from Kelly to ask me to be in it because they had changed the rules and now they were asking, they were letting directors choose who they wanted to work with. Before it was? It, before it was based on seniority. You moved up the ladder as, you, as spaces became available. So I had worked with, actually Bernadette Burkett had, I don't, I mean, the thing is, I don't really know how, but Bernadette Burkett had directed a show at Northwestern. Uh, Northwest, Northwest, yeah, which was uh, out in the suburbs. Out in the suburbs. And she had asked me to be in her 
cast, and they had said no. And then Pete Burns was going to direct an ETC, and I think Bernadette's friends with Pete, and I had worked with Pete on an industrial, and so Pete asked again for me to be in the cast, and they said yes. So the thing is, you don't, if Kelly calls you up and says, you're going to be an ETC, you don't say no. So I went into that cast knowing this is kind of a dysfunctional cast. And when you know that, for people that listen to this and it happens. You you will you will get into casts where people don't like each other, or there's anger, or there's they've been there too long. Looking back on it, how what, what did you learn from that experience? Um, what I well I what I learned from I learned so much from that experience because it was really painful, but it was also super joyous. I, because, because it wasn't just me that went at that cast, Adam McKay went into that cast and Adam McKay is like, he's just like a teddy bear genius. And so, and you want to follow him. He's also like a leader. He's an incredible leader of men. I've never met anybody who everybody wants to follow. And I'm not like a follower. No, you're a very strong personality. And I loved him. And and Jenna and I used to get so... Jenna Jolowitz. Jenna Jolowitz. She was the other woman in the cast. We would get so excited when Adam was coming in. We'd be like, Adam's, Adam's almost here. Adam's going to be here. Because he would just play with you all, all afternoon. And we did a lot of scenes in that first show with Adam. Um, one scene that I just love was we were... Um, we were two old ladies and he was a paper boy who was like a full grown man who was a paper boy because he had gone to prison and that was his only job. And we were these two old ladies and he would come in. The scene started with him throwing a full Sunday times at my head and it would hit my head every single show. Right. So for people that are listening, that was a very heavy piece of paper. It was probably a couple pounds back then. Now they're very thin. And he would throw it through the door and I would have to knowingly stick my head out to be hit with the paper. And he just, you know, he came in and he was just mean to us. But, you know, in the end it turns around and we were these crazy, wild old ladies. So that was the joyful part. And then the the not so joyful part, there was a member in the cast who was making your life really screwed with your confidence? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, there was a very... There were also other things going on. One was that Joyce, this was the first... Joyce Sloan. Joyce Sloan. Who was the, the producer for people... Beloved mother of... Mother Sec- of Second City. City. Beloved. She was asked to step down, and Kelly Leonard came in in her place, and this was the first cast that Kelly had put together. This was also the first time that you had people who had grown up in the Second City world meeting people who were I.O. people. Because prior to that, and I'm sure you've talked about this before, Second City refused to hire people from I.O. But in doing that, what happened was everyone got really good. I mean, that generation was incredibly talented because they hadn't worked at Second City they just improvised together for the love of it. And so you had all of these really talented, excellent improvisers meeting these people that had been at Second City for years, waiting to move onto stages. 
And just like any takeover, you should have just fired. <laughs> That's why you fire people, because there was a lot of anger about that, about there was a there was a feeling like we don't want Kelly's to succeed. So Kelly's hires should not succeed. Well, also on that was Second City was sold, and that's why Joy, Andrew Alexander bought Second City. And so then Joyce, they, they made her producer emeritus, and she didn't really have any casting decisions. So there was, and, and I always got the sense that Joyce wanted to buy it. So there was always this, there was, it was, I would say for a couple of years, it was pretty tumultuous. Right, right. And, and you could feel that. You could feel that. Now, you didn't feel it when you were on Torco because you were just like, Torco! Right. But on the stages, it was really tense. Um, and I think also, too, the casting changed because Joyce was making, and, and it was the, the second city, you know, the, the heavyset guy, the ingenue, right. the character woman, the, 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 the leading man type. That, that kind of was when Kelly came in, was thrown out. And I think his, his big contribution or the beginning was trying to even out the cast, three men and three right. women. Now, this was a two-woman cast and four men. Um, but at I, the resident stages. At the resident stages that I went into. And I think it's so funny because Jenna and I were the two the two women, and it depended on our weight. Like, whoever was thinnest at the time would play the pretty girl. Do they have a scale backstage? <laughs> no, but it was so clearly like, between the two of us, we would either gain 10 pounds or lose 10 pounds. And whoever was skinnier at the time would play the p- p- pretty girl, and the other one would be the character girl. Would, would that screw with your head? Like, oh my God, I, I, I have got to watch my weight? <laughs> I, the thing is, I could watch my weight because I was so depressed. I was <laughs> just shoving. But at one point, and Jenna always jokes that she always hoped that she would be th- so thin that someone would say, you don't look healthy. So <laughs> between the two of us, it was. What were you depressed about? Well, I was depressed that it was that you, I had the best job in the world and that it was just I just really felt like I had a target on my back the whole time. And I had been I had done IO, I had done Annoyance, I had done Cast on the Hot Tin Roof. I had just I had done Improvising. I had improvised everywhere and been really successful. That's how you end up in Torco. That's how you end up on a resident stage. And when I got there, uh I I couldn't I couldn't find a way to be successful ex- except when I was with Adam and Jenna because you can't be successful if the people on stage don't support you. I mean, that's that's it. You can't. We got to take a quick break here and then we'll be right back after this. And you this thing threw your confidence so in, just, just you bottomed out, oh and you end up in therapy. And, and what does the therapist tell you? Well, the therapist, you know, I end up in therapy, which I love. Because I love it too. An hour of talking about myself, I was like, "What? This? I could not pay you enough." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the th- I kept when I was in therapy, and I was so upset, and I just. I mean, this is horrible to say because men just go crazy, but I did not get my period for eight months. I shut down completely. I physically shut down. I was so, so stressed out. I was doing acupuncture. I mean, I was just a disaster, which is amazing that I wrote two other shows because because 
I just was a zombie. Why do men go apeshit by hearing that? About just that you're talking about your your oh. your, your cycle. Okay. Um. So, uh, but I would go to therapy. Oh, I wanted her to tell me to quit Second City. So basically, the only reason I went there was to have like a professional say, "Yeah, that's not a healthy environment for me. You should quit and leave." And she said just the opposite, like, "No, no, no. You need to stay and you need to work this out, and we need to turn this around." Um, so every, so that was basically it. But it was great, and she was a Jungian, and that was also awesome because she we would talk about my. I mean. And how did she help you find your voice, not only on stage, but off stage? How did she help you find that again? Um, Well, first of all, this is crazy, but part of it was just this sort of mourning, like mourning what I thought was, was going to happen on stage and what was actually happening. Explain that. So it's like you dream, like this is the dream job. I mean, I never wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. I wanted to be at Second City. You never saw Beyond Second no, City. No, I didn't. Maybe I should have, but I didn't. I wanted to do Second City. And and here it was. I was, I was doing Second City. And not only that, I had jumped other women. Like somebody had said, no, we want her. Like that is such a privilege and then for it to be so not fun and to not feel like you're succeeding when you've achieved your dream. And it sounds like a mind fuck. It was. And it was, but it was, you know, so part of that was just like really mourning that loss. And part of it also was transitional, which was me also realizing that my improv my improv career was kind of closing. Like I was going to do some, I was like, I was tired of, of being out and improvising every single night. I mean, I'm, I know we all did that. Like every night I was out every night. I was at every theater. You saw two shows a night. You, I think you it's closed a, the bars. You did. And, and it was so great. But there, but I think by the time I got there, I was like, and I had been married the whole time. I was. How old were you? With, at this I was time? 33. So I was okay. a little older. I right. lived for a couple of years in New York before and, and did theater in New Hampshire. And I, you know, people on the stages, main stage in ETC, they weren't married back then. No, I was the only, was I the only, Almond had gone. I was. Was I the only married person on a stage? I think so. I was the only married woman on a stage. And I had been married already seven years. Um, and I was I was ready to, like, you know, I was ready to have a kid. I was ready to... And also, I had a husband who wanted to be out in L.A. And I had moved here by myself to follow this. And the whole time, he wanted to be in L.A. I mean, when, so, like, leading up to this, I ended up decide like coming to the realization that it wasn't just that person it was also me I wanted I wanted to be success, successful at Second City but I also had always wanted to have kids and it was maybe time to have a kid and you did get pregnant when you were doing a show and you go in to talk to Andrew Alexander you remember what you said to him well first here's the way that I yeah. found that I, I got pregnant so as I said before I was having problems like I wasn't even getting my period so so then I was like, you know what? I'm not even get. I'm not even doing this. Like I'm not even being a female. So I'm never going to be able to have a kid. Maybe I'm infertile, as every woman does when they 
when you're younger, you're like, I can do it anyway. So I uh, go on progesterone and uh, I have one period. This is so lady thing. And then I don't have my period again. So I think I'm back at it. I'm not going to do it. So I take a pregnancy test. That was the days where it was like they were new. They were new. I take a pregnancy test. It comes out negative. I put it in the trash. And then like three weeks later, <laughs> three weeks later, this is how a uh, housekeeper I am. I'm cleaning out the trash and I look and the thing has changed to positive. That thing sat there for three weeks? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it had changed to positive and I was like, what? And the whole time I was really tired and Austin kept saying to me, Austin, your husband. My husband kept saying, what is the matter with you? And I was like, I must be really depressed. And at Second City, Miriam and I opened up the show in halter tops, in these halter tops, and we were dancing in halter tops, and my halter top kept kept getting smaller and smaller. And I and I was like, they, they shouldn't dry clean this. It keeps shrinking. So anyway, so I discover that I'm pregnant in a, I go crazy. I go out, I buy like four more of those things. I've never had health insurance. I just had health insurance because I was with Second City. So in Austin's off touring somewhere, I'm all by myself. I go, I go to Planned Parenthood because I'm like, I need to see a person. I can't get an appointment at a clinic for a couple weeks. I go to Planned Parenthood because I'm like, I really need to have a person tell me that I'm pregnant. I go in there. It's horrible there. It's terrible there. They give me a test and they say, you know, do you want to be pregnant? I go, well, I mean, I guess... And then they're like, well, you're pregnant. I'm like, oh, my God, that's so great. That's how they present it to you? Do <laughs> you want it? Yeah, they all, they, that's Why do they, they do, do that? Because they want to know how to gauge what your response is going to be. So if you say, no, I don't want to be pregnant, then they're like, well, you know, they can cage it. So I was like, eh. So then I was like, they're like, you're pregnant. I was like, oh, that's great. And then they take me through the office. They're like, this is, this is Dee. She's pregnant and she's, she wants to be pregnant. And I meet everyone at Planned Parenthood because it is one of the few times that there's something good happening in the office. Then I, the next day, I go into Second City. I go into Andrew's office with Kelly, and I sit them down, and I say, I am pregnant, and if you fire me, I will sue you. And Andrew says, why are you doing that? And I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm like, done, done being the good girl, and I just want you to know this is what it's, what's going to be. And do you think therapy got you to that point? I think so. By then I was like, you know, I think therapy was so, it was so good. It was just so good. I mean, there, of course I'm the fourth of five and there was all kinds of family issues that you, and this was part of the thing. When you're in a, when you're in an ensemble at Second City, that's a family. Yep. And, and all the stuff, all, your role as a family, you know, uh, how you look at your authority, all of that stuff is in play. I, every night, unbelievable. And the person that was so dysfunctional in the cast was also so canny. And he knew how to get to me in ways that no one had done for years. You know, you just, you like build up, I've got all these defenses, you know, I, I know what to do. And he Oh, was, like he would he would talk about how white trash my clothes were, and and and, and like I, I never knew that I had like 
the like white trash issues. And it was just like, ah, it was unbelievable. So when you look back at that, what um, what would you tell somebody? What would you tell D. Ryan if she was back there? The, the older D. Ryan looking to the the younger D. Ryan and saying, "Okay, I, this is what I this is what this is what I suggest you do." How would you have done it differently? Well, you know, I one of the things that I everyone kept saying to me is like, "Oh, reach out to him. You know, deal with him, meet with him, have lunch with him." In retrospect, I would tell myself, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Did Good you job. meet with him and have lunch with him? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't do that. Do mm-hmm. your job. It's your job. It's not about you. It's about, it's about him. And also, I think there was a real realization for me there where you, I, he was very good at making it seem like this was a personal thing between the two of us. But this is a char- that's his character issue. And it was really important for me, and I think my therapist really helped me, to, to let it play out where others could see that it was not me, that it was him. To have the strength of character, to stay out of it when he would, you know, pull me into his, his crap, and to let other people see that that, that, was, that, that was him. There were also huge issues because of of the way women were treated at Second City. At that time. Yeah. And I hope they don't get treated this way anymore. But women were were considered not funny, and it was cool to talk about that. Like, women aren't funny. Like, it was was empowering to say. Um, And... So you would hear people, you'd be in a cast, and people would say say that to, to... Do you? Yeah, there was this feeling, there was this pushback, right, that they were going three and three and that, uh, you know, why would they do that? Because the men were so much, and listen, there are so many talented men at that time. There were, and there were fewer women. So, yes, I can see that, um, but, you know, that's not my problem either. My job is just to be there and to be part of the cast. So there was a lot of pushback on the women, even from other women. Jenna and I actually met with this woman at one point, and she had come and saw the show at ETC, and she told us that we were not being feminist enough in our show. And I remember she was writing like a graduate paper, and Jenna and I were so excited to be part of her graduate paper. And then just like, what? And I just, the both of us just like, do you know how hard it is to be on that stage night after night with those guys shutting you down? And we are working our butts off. We are working our butts off just to get our stuff on the stage. And really, our job is to be funny. Our job is to entertain. Our job is not to be a feminist. If you go to the show and you think that my, that I'm funny, that that's it. That's it. That's my message to feminism. I'm doing my job well is my message to feminists, not bringing my feminist ideas to the stage. So what do you what would you tell an improviser who is struggling with? And and I think it, it has improved for women. Would you agree? I yeah, I think it has. But I but clearly there's so much going on. 
um, both in LA and here, there's a lot of pushback. And I think part of the pushback is good, is a good thing. Um, you know, I have many thoughts on, I remember there was this whole issue last year with, with sexual harassment yes. at both, at both theaters. And um, I remember going to Sharna's page and someone had posted, and you old lady improvisers, you just shut up. <laughs> and I, I, at first I was like, oh, that's, and then I, no, they are right, because I don't really know. But I would say when I came up, there were so few women, and we really took care of each other. Which is weird, because I would say the women before me at Second City were really mean to each other. They turned inward. The men were mean to them, and they were mean to the other women in the cast. But my generation refused to do that, which was awesome. So, you know, there was an understanding. Rachel Dratch and I were pitted against each other the entire time we were at Second City. It was always either Rachel or me, Rachel or me, and it was so painful. And Rachel was a little ahead of me, so we weren't that close of friends, but there was an understanding between us that we, that our friendship was more important than all that dumb stuff going on. And, and I think Tina and Amy, they, they came up together in the same companies and they had a, they had a really strong relationship. Um, and that was great for them. And that you really need to do that. You, so I got way off topic. What was the question? (laughs) Well, oh, so, so I feel like we, we knew each other. We were, there were so few of us that we would, you know, we would say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't walk to the car with that guy. We would keep more, we would keep an eye on each other. I think there's more, more women now and maybe, and I don't know what I'm talking about, but maybe there's less, because of that, there's less camaraderie watching out for each other but I don't know what I'm talking about so then you move to LA and you you are fortunate enough to get together with some people that you had worked in Chicago Stacy's not here can you tell us about that group so here's why you should always just keep saying um you always should show up you should always say what you want because I had just had a baby, and I met Rosowski Dave Rosowski at a party, and he was doing a show, and I said, um, "I want to do that show." And then that show collapsed, and Dave was putting together another show, and he asked me to do it, and it was me and Evan Gore, um, Pete, Pete Gardner. Gardner, who had been my director at, at Second City, at Second City ETC, uh, Peter Marietta, who tried to hire me way back in the day, um, and Teresa Mulligan, who Teresa and I came up together in Torco, and were, and Teresa actually stayed with me a little bit, so just a bunch of, and Teresa's a great improviser, super funny lady, um, so we started Stacey Not Here at Bang Theater. At the time, there was no, there were so few improv theaters in. There was no UCB, there was no, no I.O. West. No, there was. I was Groundlings, There was probably. Groundlings, that's it. And uh, so we did Stacey Not Here, and we had all come from Chicago, and we started doing shows together, and we would get, like, three people in the audience. And instead of being upset about it, we just worked harder, and eventually we got really good. (laughs) 
really, really good. And then we started having full houses. And so we did that show every every Friday night. I mean, maybe we did, I think, just every Friday night for probably three years. And then we took a little break because it's like a band and we started hating each other a little bit. And then we came back and did it again. So we performed on and off. In fact, I just performed with them in January. Um, what was that like? My son just turned 21, so for, for 21 years. What was that like? Here are these people. Uh, Pete's a very... Pete, uh, a gardener is very successful. He's a, 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 my, what is it, crazy ex-girlfriend. Crazy ex-girlfriend. Marietta, Pete Marietta is, he writes on every TV show. Yeah. Dave Rosowski, of course, just. Superior Donuts uh, now. Dave is a improv guru. Yep. Uh, Teresa is writing. She, she writes. On I, everything. She's uh, super successful. We had her on and she was writing a Dynamite um, Fun, uh, Dynamite. Uh, lady? Dynamite Lady Maria Bamford yeah. show. Yeah. So everybody is... Everybody's... Evan wrote for Disney, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he, he writes his own... Um, he writes scripts. He's... Yeah. It, so now the band is back together in January, and they do this show. What was that like? It was great. First of all, we're so old. Uh, I can't... I can no longer do a split scene because I, I can't hear people behind me. <laughs> I'm not even that old. Right. But I was like, I, I can't do split seats. i just like, I can't hold a conversation and listen to a conversation behind me. I was really good. But you know what was really bizarre is I was, I'm the only one who's been improvising. I've been here and I've in been Chicago. in Chicago and I've been doing a little improvising. I guess Dave has been doing some, but mostly he's been teaching and... I also, Chicago is so different from L.A. So when we, when we went back there, there was this weird, I mean, maybe they would disagree, but I felt like there was this real, like, we didn't kind of know how to start. And I felt like I was like, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. You, you know, you start with an activity and you, you know, you, everyone has three different, you know, we, it was kind of relearning but in a way, I had more upper status than anybody else when, when it how, never was that before. How did it feel for you for that? Like, you're coming in and you're, you're the big dog. You've got all the confidence. Um, it felt, I felt good. It felt good. I mean, and also, I had more confidence, too, because I had left L.A. And I how was, does that work? I just felt like, I felt like... I am so much more happier now. And and there's such a tension in L- in LA. There's just such a weird tension and our group suffers from that. We get together and I'm sure they'd all agree with me. We get together and we all talk about what we're doing cuz that's what you do in LA. Like, "Oh, Jimmy, how are you? What's going on? What are you doing?" And there's this like, who is the big dog? Well, now Gardner has a TV show, and we, so no one's even asking him. He's like a big showboat now, and he's not. He's Pete, and he's lovely, and he could not be more humble and lovable, but it's like no one's even talking to him because we all know what his deal is. And Peter, you know, is on a, he's always on a new TV show because that's the other thing. You always lose the job you loved. So everyone's, you know, everyone's just... And I am not part of that rat race anymore. And it was, it's really freeing. 
Really We've got to wrap this up. This has just been great. And we always ask at the end of the, the episode, what's one piece of advice you would give to an improviser starting out today? Um, one piece of advice I would give, play characters. Why? Um, because, because characters drive scenes, not plot. And because that's what people are there for. People are there to see you. Those can be thinly veiled characters. It can be a strong point of view. Yeah. And and because you also have to play so many people in a in a long form. And there's you play yourself in everything. And in playing more characters, you get to, to meet yourself more. Give us one secret, because you do characters and you do it really well. One secret you use for doing characters. Uh, make a physical choice first. Just do something with your hands. Do something and let the character follow. So give me an example. I just did a show last week and I came out as if I was holding I, I, holding a tray. And I just came out holding it. And someone made them melons in the scene. And it was just... It was just great. But also, it gave me something to do. So I wasn't in my head. I was focused on this thing in my hand. I didn't know what it was, but I'm going to discover it. And that's, we're always trying to trick ourselves to not think. So how does a character come from that? You come out as a tray. Now they're melons. So So I'm a woman who, why? That's the other thing. What is the why of the scene? Why are we doing the scene? Why am I... So then I have to answer that question for myself in the scene. Why am I holding this? Who is the person who holds this? Why is she carrying... I was carrying melons because it was the eclipse and I didn't have glasses and I was going to look through the melons. And do you, do you, do you change your voice when you, when you make that, 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 that choice? Yeah, and you know, I think the voice also comes from... So there's a physical choice, and there's something about the the weight of the thing I was carrying made me feel like I was maybe a little older. You, you know what I mean? I mean, so it's like taking, making decisions based on the physicality rather than having some sort of script in your head. I'm sure you do that because you play characters too. And it's just, it's well, so refreshing to me. Well, this, what I get into sometimes, and I don't know if you do too, is like, I have these stock characters or archetypes or whatever you want to call them, and I fall back on those. But what you talked about with starting with something and then letting it transform and then being inspired by that, that's scary and it's also really exciting. It is, and I have to say that was one of the things about Stacy's Not Here that we used to, because everyone was such good players, we would fuck with each other terribly. And so that was one of the things we would always do in scenes is you'd go out and I would create this beautiful, like, you know, you, you could see I'm a woman in a shop and I have baked goods and I've moved them around. And then someone would come in and make you work at a hardware store. And, you know, so you, so I've created this, we gave each other this space to create, and then we would come in and just slap. And the control freak of me in me and the perfectionist would be like, you just fuck with my environment. How do you make that adjustment? Like, okay, this is, this is a gift. Well, I, you do. And I think the thing is, it was so joyful. It was part of what happened. And so it would, there would be this moment of, okay, all right. I get it. Well, I and the it. audience appreciates it too yeah. because they're seeing they you saw set, the same thing. They see the same thing. You're setting up a bakery and somebody comes in and makes it Home Depot. 
They're in on it, too. And then they're like, oh, no, it was a baker. It's a Home Depot. And when you pivot, then, oh, you know, there's such... There's such a... We used to always say no to each other. And I remember when we went to the Austin Festival, there were improvisers in the audience who were like, oh, no. And it was just so liberating. It was so liberating to, you know, to to play at that place where you trust and love the person you're with. And when they deny you and tear your scene apart, you just say, I'm right where with you. I'm right there. So when they do that, what do you do? When they say no to your ideas, what do you do that you don't get shut down and you don't get in your head and go, oh, they're denying me. How can they do this? Um, I just go with, I just take the path with them too. And then I have the, I have the, I, you know, you just don't, I, you're just flexible. I mean, that's, I'm sure you've talked about this. That's the wonderful thing about improvisation is that it, it creates this, lifestyle where you're where things happen and instead of you can't like like me carrying that burden in second city instead you just you just shed it and say well this is what we're doing now and i'm gonna enjoy it well i think sometimes people i know i do they get the the rules in their head and so that limits them and then you know i'm judgmental and controlling and you, you have those character defects with wanting to do things perfectly that can really screw with you and of course, that what what help is that too? What help? None. I mean, not even. It's not on stage or in life. Yeah, you know when I um, when I decided to leave LA, which was just such a big giant decision because nobody does that. Um, I sold my house, which was like the thing. I mean, I was my house. People would say to me, "Oh, you have the most beautiful house. You have such a lovely house." It was your identity. It was. Which I eventually I went. You know what? I don't want to be the woman who has a nice house. Bye. But in doing that, I was like, well, that I saw my identity. And uh, Liza Murray, Joel Murray's wife, improviser, um, she asked me to join her meditation group. And I am not a person who's like, oh, touchy-feely, LA. But I did it, and I really loved it because to me, meditation was so much like improvisation. It was about, you know, breathing in and just letting go. It It was great. And so when you're doing improvisation right then it is like a meditation and it and it can feel good like a meditation too and just like a meditation it can never do it perfect d ryan thank you so much for being our guest on this special episode of improv nerd (laughs) that was amazing but i do shoot i never said the thing i wanted to say what do you want to say okay we're i'm still rolling okay we're coming back for a little (laughs) bonus here D wanted to say something that didn't get uh, discussed, and so here's your opportunity. Okay, so here's the thing. When you are in a cast with, and you're a female, or you're another in the cast, or you have problems with the audience, or it is that your, your castmates have to stand up for you. You can't stand up for yourself. When you're being attacked, when you're having trouble, it is the ensemble's responsibility to stand up for you. And that's the only way that you can maintain that, that happy ensemble. So there's no blaming the audience? Is that what you're saying? No. I, I don't... Can you... What can you... I mean, the audiences can be horrible, but... I will t- I'll tell you a story. In ETC, 
we had this horrible drunken audience. They, they like came drunk and it was a matinee and they sold out the house and they were like all from Naperville or something. And in that show, we did a scene where I was, um, I was Jim Zilovic's, um, uh, challenged, mentally challenged sister. And, um, and it was like a really, it was not a funny scene. It was a very serious scene in the, in the second act. It's my phone. We'll just, okay. Okay. It was a very serious scene in the second act. So during that show, I was like, look, we're not going to do that scene. We are not going to do that scene. And Jim turned to me and said, are you kidding? That audience, everybody in that audience has someone in their family that is mentally challenged. They're going to love that scene. And so didn't you- they just, they loved it. But, you know, it's like the ensemble. So you needed that. You needed him to kick yeah. you in the butt and say, look, we're doing this, and I've got your back. Yeah. And I've, I mean, I've been in shows where people will attack you because you're, like, you say something that's feminist and, oh, offensive. I can't win that person back. I can't win that audience back. The ensemble has to help me. And shut those people down. I mean, I, I don't know how to say it. I, I feel it's the same way with, like, the sexual harassment. It's like that we are a collective, and we have to be, we have to have each other's backs. D. Ryan, you, you said so much today. Is there anything else that we left off? Uh, um, just that... Uh, isn't it a great community? It is a great community. What do you feel about how it's grown and gotten so big? I wish that I was still more involved because it's awesome to meet people. Um, and that's one of the best things about it. And I'm not out enough. Um, but I think it's great when you meet people and that person knows you through another improviser. And there really is a sense of, of inclusion. That's all you need to be. I mean, Second City... The Second City women are so strong. When I meet a Second City woman, it's like, hello, welcome, welcome, sister. And it's and it's unspoken community. And it doesn't matter what generation. Nope. Nope. It's it's quite awesome. But the same and the other the other thing is when I came back and I improvised for the first time, I was in the original uh, Armando Diaz. I make saw his sh- eyes. Make sure you go to the picture day. Right. Um, Make sure you go to the picture day. Yeah, I'm not in the picture. Oh, yes. Okay. I, yeah, I wasn't there. Um, There's always a footnote that you were <laughs> supposed to be in the picture. There is. Um, and uh, I sat in on Armando a while back, and I was so scared. I was so scared because I was back in Chicago, and nobody knows me. I'm, you know, and but I was in the real original cast, and I was sitting in those chairs, which are really hard to get out of those chairs. And On stage, those chairs are hard to get out of? Yeah, you know, to get all the way out of a chair to yeah. edit a scene. And, uh, and someone just reached over and touched me and squeezed my shoulder. It's like, I literally, it's making me cry. <laughs> it's just like, right. What do you remember from the original Armando? Because I was terrified. I was terrified probably for the first, 
probably year and a half because you had the best of the best. I was part of Jazz Freddy, and they were in there, and I and and never felt that was as good as the other members. Then you had the family. You had Besser, Neil Flynn. Uh, was Amy in the, that original yep, cast? Yeah, Amy, Amy was Poehler? in the in the show. Tina was in the show. Yeah. So I mean, you had. You had the best of the best. And then people who were on main stage, when they would take, because it was on Monday night, they would take a night off. And it was like, I think it probably took me a year and a half to get every scene the first year and a half was I was afraid because I was really afraid. I, you know, I was going through such a horrible time during that. So I was petrified as well. But I loved rehearsals with Dell. I love rehearsals in Dell, and I'll never forget after one of the rehearsals, and you were probably there, when he said, I just want to thank you all, and this has been my dream the entire time. That was incredible. Um, I also loved Armando, and it was... Armando Diaz, who actually would do the monologue. Yeah, and that was a different show, and once Armando left, there was never any interweaving of storytelling. Maybe in Chicago there was, but in L.A. it was a very different show. Um, But it 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 was just exciting. It was exciting. It was an exciting time. When you look back at the oh talent that we were surrounded by, um, how do you look back at those days? I, I mean, I don't want to be nostalgic, but I, it, was, it, was in, it was incredible. And I am so, I mean, I understudied for, you know, Carell. I understudied those stages with Carell. Carell, Colbert. Yep. Amy Sedaris. I understudied Amy. Mm-hmm. I understudied Jackie Hoffman. I understudied Fran. I understudied Ruthie. I understudied... I don't think I've ever understudied Jenna. Um, you know, so it was great people on the main stage. And then just these, I mean, incredible improvisers. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, when I did... And I did Lois Kaz with That was a Noah. great show, yeah. Who directed... No Gregoropoulos directed that show. And I remember, then you did Second City, and you rehearse for months and months and months. And I remember the person that was so stressful to me saying to me, aren't you, on opening night, aren't you so excited for for opening night? And I just thought, no, I'm actually quite bored. (laughs) You know, stepping out at Lois Cass, doing Armando Diaz was was nerve-wracking. But doing a show that we've been scripting for months? Well, would you say that you love doing improv more than you like doing sketch? Yeah, I mean, I ha- I used to always say that. I would say to my husband, I go, I I really like story. I I like story. I just it it wasn't that. You know, you do a scene. The scene is fun. Then you go backstage. Then you come out. Then you do a scene. Then, but there's no real overarching thing. And I really do like story. Now, the the craft that I learned writing those shows is unbelievable and. That in itself is, that's, that's a master's degree. I mean, you learn how to write scenes, and then you learn how to make those scenes funny, and then you do it over and over again, and then you find out why you lost a laugh. And that, that was, that's an incredible Well, then you, you're, you become a technician. Yeah, you, you, the craft of it is incredible. I think it's interesting that when, when, when it was just Second City, those people were actors, Right. Yeah. They went on to act, but when I/O started, those people started. Those people went on to be writers, and part of it is that I feel like at I/O you you learned about structure, 
a, a herald is all about structure. It's a three-act structure, and how do you sustain structure, and how do you extend, uh, ex, how do you extend a longer form? Um, but it's Second City. It is about this scene right now, and how do you maintain that scene, and how do you act that scene? I also think it's interesting because I teach at Northwestern and I teach in the film and television department, and we try to, you know, it, you, showing. That, that it's not all about what's on the page, that it's showing. Now, when you write film and television, you write in the, the action beats. But at Second City... Car C- pulls up to, yeah. the, to the abandoned warehouse. But Second City scripts are written without any of that stuff. So you get a scene, and it's from the 60s, and you read it, and you're, you're, you go, what? This isn't funny. Because there's no... You know, you don't know what... Mike Haggerty did that sold that scene. Um, I hope they've changed that format. Yeah, Whale Boy with Chris Farley. <laughs> it's like uh, he's a whale boy, and he, and then you know we oh whale boy is here. And she's like, what is that scene? But when you see it, you know he's got this pipe, and it's Chris Farley, and so um, so anyway. D Ryan, thank you for the special bonus. <laughs> portion of this special episode. Why won't she stop talking? Oh, I loved it. Thanks so much for being our guest. And there you have it, another great episode of Improv Nerd. And I want to thank our guest, Dee Ryan, and thanking her for uh, having us over uh, to her house in the suburbs of Chicago. Thank you, Dee. I loved your honesty. I really appreciate that. Uh, Also, uh, I want to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you would not be hearing my voice right now. It would probably sound a lot like this. Uh, Also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes workshops and intensives called The Art of Slow Comedy, and I've been called Mindful Improv. That's very mindful. Um, go to my website, jimmycorain.com. Also, please follow us on social media, because you know what? I'm addicted to social media. I, I have a real problem with it. And uh, so uh, we have an Improv Nerd Facebook page. Like it. Please like it, because it helps with my low self-esteem. Follow us on Twitter, which is Improv underscore Nerd. Uh, and then, as you know, Dan has a wonderful YouTube channel. But also, I have to, I'm really excited about this. We have a Patreon uh campaign we've just started uh, where each month uh, for just $10 we will give you a video master class that I teach and then a full episode of Improv Nerd and some other great stuff so go to Patreon slash Improv Nerd to check that out Uh, also I want to thank Feral Audio for uh, being a part of this growing podcast collective I mean they have got some of the coolest podcasts out there so check out feralaudio.com and of course I can't forget you guys thank you so much for listening without you guys this would just be this this would just be a vanity project so uh, thank you so much for listening and as you know until next time remember walk don't run let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing Boris Karloff what would, it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. 
Fall Mr. Sonfeld. I'd love having you 